Right, good morning, Hume Lake. How we doing? Right on. Hey, if you got a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1, that's going to be in the Old Testament, sort of near the middle of your Bible. Uh, that's where we'll be this week. Encourage you every time we're in this place to have uh, a copy of the Bible with you as we walk through what we walk through. Now, uh, we're going to be spending some time together this week, so I figured I'd introduce myself and kind of know who's up here talking to you really fast and, and really loud. Uh, my name is Brian Howard. I'm the teaching pastor at a church called Calvary Community Church in Westlake Village. Uh, now, Westlake Village is very close to one church that's here. I want to shout out Agora Bible Fellowship. Are you in the house? Yeah, hey, they are just down the road from us, a church that we love and adore. Glad to have you guys here. Now, as we jump in, I, I want to let you know about three things um, about myself that will help you kind of understand who I am. So here's the first of three things you need to know about me. Um, ten years ago this March, um, I got to marry this lady right here on the screen. So that is my wife, Danny. We got to celebrate ten years of marriage in March. Love her to pieces. She grew up at the church uh, that I am at right now. Love my wife. It's an incredible thing. Young men, this is not part of the sermon, but this is for free, okay? Young men, go find yourself a woman who loves Jesus more than she loves you. You will never, ever, ever regret that. And that's my wife, Danny. She's amazing. She's hilarious. She's intelligent. But most importantly, she loves the Lord and walks in faithfulness to him. So that's the first thing about me. Second thing you need to know about me uh, is that in those 10 years, our family has grown. Uh, we have three babies. I want to show you the first one here. This is Grace, uh, Grace Kelly Howard. Uh, Grace is amazing. She's five. She's starting kindergarten this fall. Uh, she is sweet. She is kind. She is empathetic. Uh, she is the princess of my house and can have whatever she wants wants in this world. So that's grace. Number two, here is my son, Noah. Noah, he is nuts. He is hilarious. He's either the most charming boy in the world or he is Thanos looking to rip this universe apart atom by atom. There are no in-betweens for him. That is my son, Noah. He is three years old. And then I've got my daughter, Hope, here. Here is Hope. Uh, Hope recently discovered donuts at church and this changed her entire life. Um, Hope is wild. Hope is adorable. Um, but if I can put it this way, so we went to a camp two weeks ago with my whole family. We were like, we'll all come together as a family. Um, hope is the reason my whole family is not here. We love her. She's adorable. She's amazing. But she's in this season where, like, if she is out of routine, she is just like, ah! And we're like, oh, gosh. Okay, so we love her to pieces. My family's not with me this week. I miss them dearly, but love them so much. And those are my babies. Uh, and they just, uh, man, I pour my life into them. They're the biggest blessing in the world. Don't let everyone ever tell you that your life gets worse with kids. It gets immeasurably better. So I'm married. Number two is I have my beautiful babies and I love them to pieces. And then number three is this. And this is the most important part about me. When I was a little bit younger than you are, when I was going into my eighth grade year uh, of, of middle school, I met someone. And, and I met someone. And that someone just changed my entire life. And for some of you, this will make sense. But for some of you, this will sound so strange. Like when I was going into my eighth grade year, I met the resurrected Jesus Christ and he changed everything about me. And for some of you, that sounds so strange because to you, religion, like Christianity is a religion, it's a philosophy, it's a way of life, it's a bunch of spiritual practices. But here's what I need you to know. Christianity at its core is not a religion, an ideology, a philosophy, or a worldview. Christianity at its core, it's a person. And it's this person of Jesus. And when I was 13 years old, 12 years old, I met Jesus. And he changed the whole direction of my life. Like everything about who I am as a person at 35 years old is different because of what happened when I was 13. I met Jesus, and here's how it happened. I grew up in a Christian home, uh, but it was kind of a weird Christian home now looking back on it. My parents this summer, uh, actually just last month, 
celebrated 40 years of marriage. And that's an amazing thing that they've been married for 40 years. But here's what's bizarro about my parents. Um, for 40 years, they've never gone to the same church. So my dad is this Irish Catholic man who goes to mass every single Sunday. And my mom is this Dutch Presbyterian woman who goes to her church every Sunday. And so every Sunday as a child, the question was never, will I go to church? It was always, which church will I go to? We got to choose. And here's how I made my selections when I was a young kid. If my beloved San Francisco 49ers were playing an earlier kickoff, I would go to my dad's church because we would get out in time for us to have some lunch and watch the game. But if my San Francisco 49ers were playing Monday night or later in the day or they weren't playing that weekend, I would go to my mom's church because that was just where I wanted to go if I had to. And so I had to make a choice growing up. Which church was I going to go to? But then, but then something changed for me. Something changed the summer before my eighth grade year. Because the question for me all growing up was, where are you going to go to church? And then I was suddenly confronted with a different kind of question. It's the question I hope all of you are confronted with this week. It was the question of what am I going to do with Jesus? See, this was the shift. It was like, where are you going to go to church? And then suddenly it's like, what are you going to do with Jesus? This individual, this resurrected one who's confronting you and encountering you in power. And in that moment, I made a decision that I wasn't just going to go to church. I was going to follow after Jesus. And you know what's so cool about that decision as we stand here this week? That happened at a camp just like this. I grew up in church, I knew all the Bible answers, I had been around, I could tell you all the books of the Bible and all the characters and all the stories, and yet in that moment it went from do I wanna go to church to do I wanna follow Jesus? And that's exactly what I hope happens for each of you this week. That you, are in, you encounter this resurrected Jesus and he changes the direction of your life. So here's what I need you to know right from the top of this week. I need you to know that no one is here on accident. No one is here by a fluke. No one is here randomly. I need you to know this and write this down, that you are here on purpose and for a purpose this week. Meaning the God of the universe picked you and said, I want you to be at camp this week. And I want you, young lady, to be at camp. And I want you, young man, to be at camp. I want you to be at camp. He brought you here for a reason. I didn't bring you all here for the same reason. He brought you here for a purpose and on purpose. And here's what you need to know, that the God of the universe wants to do something in your life this week. And he's going to do it in the way he always does it from the very beginning of the Bible. He's going to do it through speaking. The God of the universe has something to say to you this week. And if you're willing to hear it, it might just change your life. The God of the universe is going to speak and he's going to do it through his word. So when we turn to Daniel chapter 1 this morning, as we turn to this passage, this story, this book we're going to look at this week, I want you to know that God is the God who speaks. And he changes reality through speaking. And so I want you to lean in and listen to what God has to say through his word this week in the story of Daniel, because the God of the universe has you here on purpose and for a purpose, and I want you to discover what that is this week. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 begins this way. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, now here's what can really happen quickly. Um, when we start reading things like this in the Bible, sometimes our brain can kind of check out. Because it's all these names and places and things that we don't really understand, and so we're just kind of confused, and so we don't know what to do with it. But here's, it's just so simple what the beginning of the book of Daniel is doing. It's the easiest thing. It is setting the time and the place for the story they're about to tell. It'd be like if I told you this, hey, when I was in sixth grade, my family went to Disneyland. Now in that moment, I'm setting the table for a story for you. What am I telling you? I'm telling you two things. I'm telling you a time when I was in sixth grade, and I'm telling you a place, Disneyland. Now in your mind, you're looking at this story going, okay, he was in sixth grade and he was at Disneyland. The same thing's happening right here. Daniel is giving us a time and a place 
that this story begins. Here's the time. It says in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, or Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So, so what this means is that this happens in 589 B.C. 589 B.C. How do we know that? We know that because in history books, even outside of the Bible, it tells us how these things went. And so this is about 2,600 years ago, 600 years before the birth of Christ. This is where the story takes place. 600 years before Jesus, 2,600 years before us sitting right here. And then it tells us the place, right? It says that these two kings are going to war, and where are they going to war? At Jerusalem. They're going to war in Jerusalem. And here's why this is so interesting to me. What's so interesting to me is that it gives us a time and it gives us a place. And what's fascinating is it's a time that we can remember in human history, and it's a place you can actually go to. Like, do you know that if you drove down to Los Angeles International Airport or San Francisco International Airport and you took a plane, you could land in Tel Aviv and be in Jerusalem by tomorrow? This isn't some place you can never go to or some place no one's ever heard of. This is a place in real time, in real space, in real history. And here's why I think this matters. I think a lot of people, maybe even some of you, think the Bible is a legend. It's a fairy tale. It's a myth. But here's what I need you to know. The way this sentence is written, the one you just looked at in your Bible, is not how fairy tales, myths, and legends are written. Here's how fairy tales are written. Fairy tales are written once upon a time in a far away kingdom. Or maybe you know this fairy tale. Say it once you know it. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. That's what a myth is. That's what a legend is. It's in a place so far away no one could ever get there. It's in a time so far back in the past no one can remember. But that's not what this says. This says this is about 2,600 years ago in human history. This is in Jerusalem where you could actually fly to and be there by tomorrow. See, the Bible is not a myth. The Bible is not a legend. The Bible is not a fairy tale. The Bible is the story of real people in real places in real life encountering a very real God. And here's why this matters for you this week. Because my intention in teaching on the story of Daniel is not for you to look at some story in the Bible about Daniel and be like, I should be like Daniel. That's not the point. You're not living Daniel's life. You don't have Daniel's circumstances. You're not just supposed to be just like Daniel. The point of this week is not to live the life Daniel lived. The point of this week is to trust the same God Daniel trusted. To trust in the same God who is present in this room, just like he was present in this story, in the life of Daniel. I want you to see how it goes on. Again, it says, in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, or Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. So again, this is real life and real places. In history books, you can read about this, of the Babylonian Empire conquering lands all around it. And here's the story as it sets up. There's two armies fighting. You've got the army of the king of Judah. This is the people of God. This is God's chosen and holy people. These are the Jewish people who God has looked at and said, you are my beloved and my treasured people. And they have one army. The other army is of the king Nebuchadnezzar. This is of the empire and the kingdom of Babylon. They are fighting against God's people. You need to know this about Babylon. Babylon was not a bunch of good guys. These were horrible, vicious, bloodthirsty people. They would come into villages and towns and cities and burn everything to the ground. They would kill the men. They would rape the women. They would sell the children into slavery. These are not good people. These are wicked, evil, horrible, pagan people. And here's the conflict. You've got the good guys over here, right? You've got the people of God. You've got God's chosen and holy and covenant people. And then you've got the bad guys over here. You've got the nation of Babylon, this empire, this terrible, wicked, awful, pagan place. 
And here's what this text tells us. Don't miss this in verse 2. It says that God picked a winner in this fight. God actually picked who won this battle. And every part of our instinct would think that God was going to choose his people. But what does it say here in verse 2? It says, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. In other words, God looks at Judah, God looks at Babylon, and says, I'm picking a winner. It's Babylon. And this is shocking. Because you would expect that if God's going to pick a winner, he's going to pick his people. He's going to pick the people who love him and worship him and are in covenant relationship with him. But that's not what God does. And this is a fascinating question. Why doesn't God choose his people? Why doesn't God choose his holy and righteous and covenant people over the nation of Babylon? It's a good question. It's a question I want to answer for you this morning. See, I want to give you an answer to the question, why does God do anything? Why does God do anything? Why does God do whatever he wants to do? Why does God do this? And I want to give you an answer out of Psalm chapter 115. Here's what it says in Psalm 115. It says, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Our God is in heaven, and he does whatever pleases him. You want to know the reason God picked the Babylonians over the nation of Judah? Because God is in heaven, and that's what he was pleased to do. That's what he wanted to do. That's what he saw as right and good and holy to do. God made a choice, and it was the right choice. It was the choice that brought him pleasure. It was the choice that brought him joy. And here's what I know is happening in some of you. Right now, as I say that, that's stirring up all sorts of angst inside of you. Like God just does whatever he wants, and whatever he wants just brings him pleasure. What is this about God? How can he just choose that? Why didn't he choose Judah? Why would he choose this? And here's what I want you to know about our God. He is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. And what this brings us to, is right to the core of who God is. Right to the core, the most basic fact about our God. The most basic thing about our God is actually found in this. Again, you'll see in verse two here, it doesn't say God delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. It says this. It says the Lord delivered him. Here's what I need you to know about this word Lord. This word Lord in the scriptures, when it was written in Hebrew, it is the word Yahweh. Yahweh is the name of God. It is his given name. It is what he presents to the world. He says, I reveal my name to you, and my name is Yahweh. Like God's name is not God. God's name is Yahweh. And Yahweh in the Hebrew language simply means this, I am who I am. Or, or other translations would put it, I will be who I will be. So in other words, God is in heaven. He does what he pleases. Why? Because he is who he is. And he's going to be who he's going to be. And here's the way I love to think about it. That God is who he is, and you do not get a vote. You do not get any input. You don't get to shape that or decide that or remake God into what you think he should be like. Like I've talked to far too many teenagers who think, well, if I were God, I would never do that. Or God would never disapprove of these people. God would just want them to be happy. Or God surely would never let that happen. Or God surely would never cause pain in this life. Surely God would never do this. And here's what you need to know about God. God is who he is and you don't get a vote. You only get two choices. You can receive him for who he is, which is a beautiful thing. You can receive him and revere him for who he actually is. You can reject him and want nothing to do with him, and I want you to hear me clearly on this. I want you to know some of you who have nothing to do with God, you want nothing to do with God in your life, you are welcome to reject him this week. That might sound funny from a preacher, but what I want you to know is this, God gives you that. He allows you to reject him, and if you want to reject him this week, you can no one's going to force you or manipulate you or coerce you into believing anything this week. You can receive him as he is. 
You can reject him and not want anything to do with him, but here's what you are not at liberty to do. You are not at liberty to reshape God into your own image. You are not at liberty to say, God would act and behave and think just like I would. See, again, here's the shocking beginning of the story. The shocking beginning of the story is that God, the one in heaven who does whatever he chooses, who is who he is, looks at Judah, looks at Babylon, he picks a winner, and he picks Babylon. He picks King Nebuchadnezzar. And I want you to see what happens as a result of this. Verse 2. It says, these he, that would be the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put the treasure there in the house of his God. So, so when it says these here, it's actually an interesting word play. He, he's stealing things from Jerusalem. He's taking items from the temple. But what we actually know is he's actually taking far more than treasures from a temple. He is taking people. See, the Babylonians had this strategy when they would go conquer a people. They realized very quickly that if we just go into a nation and kill everyone there, then there's just empty land and wild beasts will go around and it'll just rot and destroy. So what they would do is this. They would leave some people in the land, but they would take the officials, the royal people, the high class, the influencers, and they would take them off to Babylon. And what they would do is they would actually march them out of their home city, out of their home country, and relocate them to Babylon. Let me show you this on a map. So you'll see up here on this map, you got Jerusalem on your left here, near the Mediterranean Sea where Israel is. That's where Israel, if you went today, that is Israel. You're in Jerusalem. And what do they do? You see that red arrow? They march them over to Babylon. Now you might ask, that seems like a long way around. Why not just go the straight way? And the answer is a little thing called the Arabian Desert. The Arabian Desert on a cold, mild day is 104 degrees. It usually gets up to about 119 degrees. So even in the ancient world, they're like, we're not going to waste our time with that. And they march up and around through the rivers and into Babylon. This is what happens. And this is where we pick up our story. This whole theme of exile, you see it in the creative way of being crashed on this island. All of this is about an exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. An artist years ago put it this way. They were painting this photo or painting this image to show Jerusalem burning on fire. The Babylonians have sacked and sieged the city and they're forcing people to flee. You take everything you own, you put it on your back and you are marching off to Babylon. And our entire week this week is a story of a people who have been forcibly evicted from their homes, made to march hundreds of miles around the Arabian desert and land in a new place with just the possessions and the clothes on their back and start a new life. The story we're gonna read this week is the story of the people of God, the people of Israel, the people of Judah in exile. And if you're taking notes this morning, I need you to know three things about exile. Three things, write these down. The first thing I need you to know about exile is that exile happens in a place that is uncomfortable. A place that's uncomfortable. Second thing I'll talk about is that it is a place that is unfriendly. The third thing I'll talk about is a place that is uncompromising. Exile is a place that is uncomfortable, it is unfriendly, it is uncompromising. What do I mean uncomfortable? I mean that the people of Judah pack everything on their bags and they go to this new place called Babylon. There's a new language and a new culture and a new way to dress and a new way to act and new kinds of foods and new gods. Everything's new, everything's different, everything's uncomfortable for them. It's a place that's uncomfortable. It is a place that is unfriendly. It's not like Babylon was like, welcome, people of Judah. We're so glad you're here. Could I bring you cookies? Like, we're going to see story after story after story this week where people look at these Jewish people, they're suspicious, and they want to kill all of them. It is an unfriendly place. It is an unkind place. It is not hospitable. It is uncomfortable. It is unfriendly. And it is uncompromising. Uncompromising. 
which means all throughout the story, what we're going to see is they're not going to say, well, you believe this, so why don't we believe this, and we can meet in the middle. There's no compromise here. When the people of Judah have to go, they have to worship the Babylonian gods, eat the Babylonian food, be part of the Babylonian culture. They go into this place, and it's not like, let's see how we can meet in the middle and mold our cultures together. They are told, you will be a part of our system, our morality, our worldview, our way of acting, or you will die. It is uncompromising. It is uncomfortable. It is unfriendly. It is uncompromising. And the question for the people of God in this moment is this. How do we stay faithful to Yahweh? How do we stay faithful to the Lord our God in exile, in this exile that is uncomfortable, that is unfriendly, and is uncompromising? And you know what's wild about the Bible? The Bible is going to answer that question for us over and over and over and over again. If you're in your Bible right now, I want you to actually flip forward to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you don't want to go there, that, that's all right. We'll talk through this passage as we close out this morning. But I want you to see that this idea that we are in exile, this idea that we are in a place that is uncomfortable, that is unfriendly and uncompromising, is something the Bible understands deeply. And the question of how do we stay faithful to our God, how do we stay faithful to Yahweh in the midst of this, is answered all throughout the scriptures. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, here's how we begin. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So here's how 1 Peter begins. It begins with Peter, one of the first followers of Jesus, who's an apostle, meaning he has the authority to speak for Jesus. And he's writing to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of these five cities, which is all in modern-day Turkey. But notice what he calls them here. He calls them God's elect like in other words, these are God's covenant people. He chose them, he wanted them. I need someone in this room to know right away this morning, it's not just that God accepts you, it's that God wants you, God picked you, God wants you on his team. God looks at you and said, I would do anything to have that person in my family. We are elect, but then what does it call us? Exiles, exiles. This same thing comes up. Like in other words, what we saw in the book of Daniel is that the people of Judah, the nation of Israel, is in exile. And then what Peter tells us is it's not just true for the people in the nation of Judah, it's actually true for Christians. I need you to know that followers of Jesus follow Jesus in exile. That if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the only environment you do that in is the environment of exile. And if anyone can remember three minutes ago or look down to their notes, there are three things that are true about exile. Three things that are true about the place you follow Jesus right now. The first is that exile is a place that is uncomfortable. The second is that it is a place that is unfriendly. And the third is a place that is uncompromising. Listen, follower of Jesus, child of God, you live in a place that is uncomfortable. I mean that if you are a follower of Jesus, you should look around the culture, look around the place you live in today, and go, I just don't fit here perfectly. The music they listen to, the clothes they wear, the way they behave, the way they act, the things they believe, I just don't fit in. I don't fit in on my high school campus. I don't fit in on my team. I don't fit in with culture. I don't listen to the same music or speak the same way or dress the same way. I'm uncomfortable and I don't fit. In fact, I would say this. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus and have no discomfort with the way the world operates, there is something profoundly wrong with your discipleship to Christ. You should feel uncomfortable. So if you're the guy on the football team and you're the only one who follows Jesus and it kind of feels weird because everyone else is doing their own thing but you don't want to participate, that's normal, good, right, and healthy. 
If you are part of the theater program and everyone else does this thing and they talk this way and they believe these things, but you kind of feel uncomfortable because that's not who you are, that's not bad, that's a good thing. You should be uncomfortable in exile. You shouldn't buy into the systems of this world because exile is a place that is uncomfortable. Number two, it's a place that's unfriendly, which means this, child of God, follower of Jesus, if you follow Jesus faithfully in this world, they will hate you. I want you to know that there are people who hate you simply because you are a follower of Jesus. They hate you. They despise you. They look down on you. They think you are small and bigoted and silly and narrow-minded. They think you are backwards and uneducated and not even worth their time. There are people who hate you. So here's what some Christians think. Some Christians think if they follow Jesus properly, the world will love us. But that's not what Jesus actually said. Jesus said, if you follow me right, the world will hate you. And you know the reason the world will hate you? Because the world hates the idea that Jesus is king and they have to submit to him. They don't want anything to do with that. So if you live in exile and you follow Jesus properly, you will find yourself in an unfriendly place. Exile is a place that is uncomfortable. It is unfriendly. And finally, it is uncompromising. Have you noticed the culture today is not like, well, you believe this and I believe this so we can all just get along and do our own thing. That's not how it works, right? Here's how it works. If you don't believe what I believe, it's because you're bigoted. If you don't believe what I believe, it's because you're stupid. We can't agree to disagree. We actually have to destroy you, cancel you, push you out of society. Your ideas, your beliefs, your Bible is silly and it's small and it's stupid. Notice it's not a compromise mentality. It is a no compromise mentality. You live in a culture that has no interest in compromising with God. It has every interest in being uncompromising about its own views, views on money, views on sex, views on gender, views on politics, views on family, views on marriage, views on babies, views on everything. There are views that are prominent in our culture, philosophies and ideas that swirl around. And you as a Christian, you cannot compromise with it, and it will not be compromised with you. So the question for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus, according to Peter, who is in exile, is this. How do we stay faithful to Yahweh? How do we stay faithful to Jesus in the midst of exile? And then it's going to give us answers to this, even here in verse 2. It says, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Like, in other words, Peter keeps coming back to this. It's not just that you love God. It's that God loved you first, and he wanted you. God was picking the team from heaven, and he said, I want that girl. I want that guy right there. That leader, I want him. I want her. I want that person in my family. God picked you, he chose you according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and then underline these words, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be to yours in abundance. So in other words, Peter is gonna identify that we're exiles and then the first thing he's really gonna wanna do is make sure we understand that God loved us, God chose us, there's a Holy Spirit of God within us, but then he tells us we're called to do something. Like the idea of Christian faith is not just that you believe something in your mind, it's that it's you actually obey through your body. You obey through your life. What God is calling us to, if we want to be a people in exile, is to be a people of obedience to his word, a people who listen to God and do what he says. You know, it's really interesting um, that the people in these videos, the people in this opener, worship the tide. And I was thinking last night, as I was sitting back there just thinking about the tide and thinking about that and thinking about the way so many of you operate in our culture See, I want to make a distinction for you between two animals that live in the sea. The first is this, we'll put it on the screen, is the jellyfish. Now, a jellyfish is not really interesting or exciting. It kind of exists there. It's kind of like, okay, that's interesting. But here's what you need to know about jellyfish. Jellyfish make almost no decisions on their own. 
Jellyfish just literally, if the tide is going this way, they float this way. And if the tide is going that way, they float that way. And if food happens to come in their direction, they eat it. And if there is no food, they die. They just kind of float along and do their thing. This is what a jellyfish does. And you know the tragedy? I think there are some of you in this room who do the exact same thing with our culture. You just float along. If the, if the culture does this, you do this. If people dress this way, you do this. If they talk this way, you do this. If they listen to this kind of music or watch these kind of shows, you do this. If everyone starts believing this, that, or the other thing, you just kind of float into it. Some of you are jellyfish. You just float along on the surface. And whatever the tide of culture does, you just buy into it. You don't question it. You, you don't step back and go, that's not me. You're not uncomfortable with it. You're good with music that's filled with vulgarity that you have no business listening to as a child of God. You're good dressing in ways that are absolutely offensive to the heart of God. You're good acting in ways and believing things that are contrary to what God says. Why? Because you're a jellyfish. You're just floating on the surface of the tide of the current. You have no interest in obedience to the Lord. You're just going wherever it goes. Let me contrast that with another animal, and that's the dolphin. The dolphin. Now, if I asked you in this room, who wants to be a jellyfish, who wants to be a dolphin? I think all of you would be like, oh, a dolphin would be way cooler, right? Like dolphins are definitely awake. We see dolphins in the water like, oh my gosh, dolphins, right? We're so excited. But here's what you need to know about dolphins. Dolphins are not like jellyfish. Dolphins choose which direction they want to go when they go in that direction. Dolphins, whether the tide's going that way or that way, if they want to go that way, they are going that way. If it's with the tide, great. If it's against the tide, great. They're going that direction. And you know how dolphins do it? The silly thing about dolphins is we think dolphins live up at the surface because that's when we get to see them. But most of their life, they're not living up by the surface. You know what dolphins do? You know the way they fight against the current? They get deep. The only way to fight against the current is to get under it, to get deeper than it, to get deeper than where the currents and the waves are actually leading you. You know the only way to fight against this culture? To not just get tossed around on the waves one way or the other? It's for you to get deep. It's for you to find some depth. And here's what I need you to know. Far too many people who grew up in church think depth means more knowledge. So you're like, depth means we did this real cool study of Hebrews and the Melchizedek priesthood, and now I understand it. Depth means I looked at this Greek or Hebrew word, and we picked it apart, and we realized, da-da-da. Those are all really cool things. But you know what depth is? Depth does not come through knowledge. Depth comes through obedience. You do not become a deep Christian by learning more things. You become a deep Christian by actually doing what Jesus called you to do. My plea for you this week is that some of you would recognize that you're just jellyfish. You're just floating along, doing and believing what everyone else in the culture does. My hope for you this week is that you would become this dolphin who gets depth through obedience and says, I'm going to go the direction God has called me to go, whether the tide is going with me or against. Verse 3 says this. It says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's going to tell us this is our Lord Jesus Christ, the master, the king of our life. This is God the Father, Yahweh, and it tells us praise be to him. And that is my ultimate hope. Like as I pray and prepare and make my way up to camp, my prayer, my hope for every one of you, for over a thousand high school students, for every one of you leaders here this week, is that this would be your heart and posture this week. That you would have praise toward the Lord, that you would have adoration toward him. Listen, the right posture for you this week is a posture of adoration for who God is. He is Yahweh. He is who he is. That you would have this honor and reverence and respect and that you would have worship for him this week. Adoration is the right posture. But you know what happens so often at camp? What often happens so often at camp is that we're not in a posture of adoration. We're actually in a posture of assessment. So let me ask this. Raise your hand if you have been to Hume like three or more times. Three or more times. Okay. I'm speaking to you right now. You are in danger 
if you have been here over and over and over and over again, you are in danger of moving from what I call adoration mode, where you are adoring God and who he is, and slipping into assessment mode. And here's assessment mode. Oh, last year it was this, but I kind of like the ship better. And oh, the theme last year was this, but I like this better. Last year's speaker was better. This guy kind of crazy. But last year's band, uh, but this year's band is amazing. And you're just kind of like in assessment mode. And so everything's evaluating. Everything's assessing. You're assessing your leader. You're assessing people in your cabin. You're assessing that new girl. You're assessing that new guy. You're talking about how different it is, what you like, what you don't like. And you become like a food taster. Don't be a food taster this week. Your job is not to like nibble around the edges and assess what you think of everything. Your job is to feast on the power and the presence of Jesus. He's in this room. He's here. He's with you. He wants to encounter you. Don't be the nitpicker who's just looking around camp trying to find something to complain about or celebrate. Be the person whose heart is adoring, is worshiping God. It says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It goes on this way to say, who in his great mercy, in his great mercy, you know what I love about that? If you have a pen with you and a Bible, circle that, underline it, highlight it. God is filled with not just mercy, but like great mercy. And here's why this matters so much. If you want to be faithful in exile, it begins not with looking inside of you, but with looking toward God and having a proper view of him. He is Yahweh. He is who he is. And you know what the defining feature of Yahweh is? It is his great mercy. And if you want to thrive in exile, if you want to actually operate as a faithful follower of Jesus in a culture that is uncomfortable and uncompromising and unfriendly, you must start with the right view of God. It does not start with you looking inside of you. The entire culture says, if you want to be strong, look inside of yourself. I am telling you the exact opposite this week. Look outside of you toward a God who is filled with great mercy. And here's the tragedy. I think far too many of you think of God and you think of him as anything but merciful. It was like this. I shared that I was a 49er fan, and still am. Uh, and there's years that's great and years that's terrible. But all growing up, um, my family had season tickets to the 49ers. And the great thing about season tickets is you go to the same seats week after week after week. And the people around you are the same people week after week after week. So you see them. You get to know them. You don't really know them deeply, but you kind of know who they are. And, and so we would go to our seats, and the game would start. And the 49ers would score a touchdown. There would be some big play. And you would do it every other person in the stadium does. You're sitting watching and you jump up to your feet and you begin to clap. But then we discovered a man who sat just behind us and to the left and, and, and the man was older. He was an older gentleman and he had trouble getting up. So when everyone else would stand, he would have a hard time standing up really quickly with everyone. He was old and we will never forget, it just rings in my ears to this day, he would go, down in front! <laughs> down in front! I even say it, I just react. Like in my body, there's like trauma. Down in front! And, and, and you just started to hear this. And so after the games, we would start to lovingly refer to him as grumpy old guy. And what would happen is grumpy old guy would yell so much that sometimes the Niners would score. And rather than standing to my feet, I would like kind of get up a little and look back to him because I didn't want him yelling down in front at me. And I think some of you have a view of God that's basically like grumpy old guy. You're living your life and he's just kind of looking down at you. Stop doing that. You're not good enough. You didn't pray enough. You didn't read your Bible enough. You didn't worship well enough. You should be better. You should be beyond that right now. You shouldn't still struggle with that sin. You're terrible. You're awful. You're no good. Some of you have that view of God. And here's what I need to proclaim over you. There is a God who is filled with great mercy. He loves you. He adores you. He doesn't just love you. He likes you. He actually enjoys hanging out with you. He's not filled with rage and contempt. He's filled with compassion and great love and mercy for you. Patience beyond anything you could imagine. When the scriptures describe the Lord God, Yahweh, it says this way in Exodus 34. It says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, 
slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. This is your God. If you want to understand how to operate well in exile, how to be a resilient follower of Jesus in exile, it begins with a proper view of Yahweh, of this God who is filled with great mercy and tenderness and compassion toward you. Here's how we'll finish this morning, verse 3. It says, he, this is God, Yahweh, has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. The inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Here's what you need to know. In the midst of exile, in the midst of living in a place that is uncomfortable, that is unfriendly, that is uncompromising, there is one thing you need one thing that will keep you going, one thing that will fuel your tank as you follow after Jesus, and that is hope. And the hope described here in this passage is a hope that will never perish, never spoil, never fade. In other words, it's the kind of hope that can't be taken away from you. And it is so much better than the lousy, low-grade, watered-down hope some of you have received. Like, here's the hope some of you think for your life. You're in high school right now, and you're like, things are awful, and it's hard, and things aren't really great in my family. They're not great in my house. I've got acne, or I don't feel like I look cool, or I'm not doing well in school. But here's the dream. The dream and the hope is this, that I will get through high school, and I'll get into a decent college. And after college, I will go get myself into a good grad school. And after grad school, I will graduate and I will get myself a good job where I will work myself up the ladder and I will make more money. And once I am rich and past my teenage years, I will marry a husband or a wife and they will be beautiful. I will marry a hot spouse and I will have a dream wife, a dream husband, and then her and I, or him and I, will have 2.4 children. We will live in a, a house with a white picket fence. We will buy very nice cars at some point, one for her, one for him, and one for us, right? Like that's what we're going to buy. And then we're going to go on some nice vacations, raise up the kids, retire hopefully before 65, play golf for five to ten years, and then I will die. Like that's the hope some of you have. Some of you have built this whole life plan where your entire hope is life isn't so great now, but as I go forward, everything will get better because more and more and more I will live the American dream. And here's what I want you to know. I love America, but I think the American dream is a terrible hope for you. And here's why. Because if at any point in that chain something goes wrong, you get sick, your spouse gets sick, you lose your job, you lose anything, Everything crumbles. See, if you live by the American dream of just nicer house, nicer car, nicer job, nicer life, everything's comfortable, everything's lovely, it's great until it's not. If you live by the American dream, you'll be filled with panic. But I want to give you a hope and a dream to live by that will fill you with peace. So your hope that is unperishable, does not spoil or perish or fade, is not in the American dream. The hope you have as an exile is in heaven. That is your hope. Your hope is in heaven. And when I say heaven, here's what happens. We kind of have in our mind kind of some weird things sometimes with heaven. So what we think of when we see heaven is what we see in paintings or in cartoons. So it's like heaven is the place when I die, my soul floats up there. I have wings and a halo and a harp and I sing songs forever. And that sounds kind of boring. But here's what I need you to know. That's not how the Bible describes heaven. The Bible describes heaven as such a better hope than that. Can I give you the three ways? Write notes. This is the final thing. The three ways the Bible describes heaven and this is your hope. Number one, number one is the return of the king. 
The Bible describes heaven in this way, that heaven is inaugurated, it is kicked out with the, he, with the king returning from heaven. It is Jesus Christ returning in glory to judge the living and the dead. Jesus came once, he died for our sins, he rose from the dead, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. But one day he will crack the sky and every eye will see him and every tongue will confess him, Lord, and every knee will bow. That's what's coming. And so you need to know that there will come a day where Jesus comes and judges everyone, including you, including your friend, including your worst enemy including the people you can't stand in this world, they will stand before Jesus in judgment. It is the return of the king. Number two, it is the resurrection of our bodies. The resurrection of our bodies. What does that mean? Most Christians believe Jesus rose up from the dead. They believe he literally, physically, gloriously, eternally rose up from the dead that first Easter morning. But you know what most Christians miss? They forget that the same thing's gonna happen to us. That what happened to Jesus is gonna happen to you. Like you will die someday and your body will go on the ground. But there is actually going to come a day where Jesus Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. And you too will be physically, literally, gloriously, eternally raised from the dead. Meaning heaven isn't your soul floating away into a cloudy place forever. Heaven is physical. It's tangible. And you know why that's the best news in the world? Man, about like seven years ago, my grandma died. She loves Jesus. Some of you walked that road. You know what's so cool? It's not just like my soul might meet her someday. It's that someday Jesus is going to return. He's going to raise my body. He's going to raise her body. And I'm going to get to hug her neck again. That's what I'm gonna get. That's what my hope is. My hope is whatever happens in this world, no matter what goes on with me and my life and my body, Jesus says, don't worry about it, I'm gonna raise you up on the last day. It is the return of the king, it is the resurrection of the body, and the final thing that is our hope is the restoration of all things. I want you to know what the Bible gives us as a hope, not just like this world disintegrates and goes away and then we float off to heaven. It's that Jesus brings heaven to earth and that marriage of heaven and earth resurrects all things so that all the sad things become untrue. All the pain of this life is no more. No more crying, no more mourning, no more pain. God makes all things new. That's what we look forward to, that there will come a day where Jesus comes back and says, enough, enough cancer, enough pain, enough heartache, enough betrayal, enough of all of this. And he makes all things new. It is the return of the king, it is the resurrection of our bodies, it is the restoration of all things. The invitation for you this week, the invitation is for you to stop looking for hope in the silly, small things of this world, in the small things of pleasure or of comfort or of money or of success or of fame or, or of notoriety or popularity. It's to stop looking for hope in those things and to remember what the first Christians remembered, that they live in exile, a place that is uncomfortable, unfriendly, and uncompromising, and yet they have a hope that is in heaven it is the return of the king, it is the resurrection of our bodies, it is the restoration of all things. And that is a hope that will never spoil, perish, or fade. No matter what happens to you, it will never be taken from you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for this morning. Thanks for the opportunity to turn to your word, to think deeply about who you are and what you call us toward. God, I pray that as we go into group right now, as we go into the rest of this week, uh, God, that your presence would be with us, your spirit would go with us, and that you would fill us with the same kind of hope Peter had, the same kind of hope that Peter leaned on. And so, God, we trust you, we love you, we believe you, and we ask that you would meet us in this place this week. We pray it in Christ's name, and all God's people said.